0: back to sports and society we're here on february
1: 16th and how you doing today carl i'm doing well i am realizing that you just mentioned taxes off air so now i'm like completely dreading and <laughs> like trying to avoid a spiral um <laughs> it also just made me think of uh what taxes are like for someone like lebron james oh my what is that? I like, what, I am completely ignorant of what that would be like.
0: Well, and you hear all these stories, and it's so easy to believe when you take a moment and think about it about these athletes that are getting totally shafted by their accountants or whoever is dealing with their money for them, because it's incredibly complex, and if you know what you're doing, you could you could probably take whatever you wanted without most people noticing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know why I, I this is probably something I did when I was a kid but it has resurfaced in my life of when I'm doing the seemingly mundane tasks of a human. Like the other day I was making some pot stickers and they were sticking to the pan. I was like does um you know does LeBron James have to deal with pot stickers sticking to a pan and the frustration that that induces, or um even thinking about him logging on h and r block to fill out his taxes like what <laughs> what's it like to live like uh in that wealth bubble or that protected bubble although it comes with its own costs but Uh, I, I, I often wonder like what their normal existence is like,
0: you know, I was listening to, um, a reply all episode this week. And if you don't listen to reply all everyone out there in the world, you should definitely do so. Um, and they're talking about this, uh, uh, guy that was a TikTok uh, celebrity and he kind of like got off the path and had to shut down his account. And then he came back like two years later claiming to be a different person like he went on his original media accounts and was like hey this guy looks a lot like me i'm gonna go ahead and give him my social media account so that you guys can like him but i'm gonna be off of it forever and you look at the pictures and you're like this is clearly the same person what are you what are you talking about um but it's just it's amazing uh i think what can happen when you're so distant from the real mm-hmm. world Yep. Yeah, I, I think about that all the time. I, and it, you know, I'll see these guys, like uh, they'll post a picture of them sitting on a sofa with these um, like oxygen things on their legs or cold bio, ice bath stuff wrapped around their legs. It's like, you guys just don't have the routine that we can even fathom in any way.
1: It's so true, and not to jump the gun on our main topic this week, but I mm-hmm. can't imagine that we know that much really about the mental health toll on living like that um which reminds me i wanna uh i'm thinking of Lindsay vaughn right now and i just watched a documentary about her uh and how overwhelmingly like depressing her, her daily life appeared to me or at least like something like challenges that seemed incredibly challenging uh from like a mental health and wellness perspective um so that money may insulate you from having to dig out pot stickers from the pan, but <laughs> there's a whole slew of other issues out there.
0: It does indeed, Jess. You may be able to pay your own accountant and your own chef, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily living as well as you could be.
1: Mm-hmm. This is somewhat of a connection to what I've been paying attention to this past week. all uh, right uh, do share. So, Rory McIlroy granted Paul Kimmage. Are you familiar with Paul Kimmage?
0: I know the name, but not much else about him.
1: Yeah, so he is new to me. He was a professional cyclist turned journalist. Uh, And I forget the name of... He wrote a book that was published in 1990 that kind of made his name as a writer. Uh, It was pretty controversial because apparently he kind of went right at the doping and cycling, mm. maybe a little bit before anybody else was, is my hunch, but I need to learn more about him. Uh, but Paul Kimmage is a part of the significance of the interview with Rory McElroy for me because he is Irish and is, uh, from what I gathered this week, like extremely well-known uh, in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's interesting. Like A, a famous journalist... Inter- uh, interviewing a famous athlete. So there's kind of this uh, glossy sheen around the interview in the first place that the stakes and it heightened because of fame uh, and because of being well-known made it interesting to me. And it's such that it's a three-part document or a three-part interview and each of three parts are really lengthy. And I have not been able to read parts two and three. I think part three comes out today. Uh, because they're both uh, blocked by the premium premium account mm. uh, for the independent newspaper, so I haven't even read the second and third parts, but uh, the way uh, of, of the many things that were interesting about it, Paul Kimmage started the interview by saying how impossible it is to get access to professional athletes at mm-hmm. this point in time. And so he really raked uh, Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer over the coals right at the start. And he uh, kind of had these little anecdotes about how any interview with them is less than 15 minutes. And the last three minutes, the questions have to be about a product. And so with Federer, he had to try like three times to ask Federer the right question so that Federer could use the catchphrase of some like um, – champagne that um, he, he, he's uh, paid by. And so he was saying how refreshing it is to sit down with Rory McIlroy because there's none of that. And not only that, Rory granted him like three days. Hmm. Uh, and he said, no question is off limits. He's like, I'll answer whatever you want to ask me. And so already that like adds to the layer of fame and kind of adds a uh, Another layer of intrigue for me, uh, so you've got these two famous uh, Irish sports people uh, seemingly like applauding each other for what they're doing, you know, so kind of saying like Paul Kimmage is already giving Rory the benefit of the doubt, but nonetheless, he goes on and asks some really tough questions. Uh, And so it's a really candid interview and they, they get into a lot of things, um, a couple of things were talking about not playing in the Olympics and uh, essentially Rory takes a stab at how powerful nationalism and patriotism is in sports and how he thinks that's kind of absurd. Uh, and that added to his reason for not playing in the Olympics, but really it was because he was forced to choose between Ireland or Great Britain. And he's like, I'm not from either of those places. I'm from Northern Ireland. Um And he he takes some digs at fellow players uh, and just kind of says exactly what he thinks about them. Mm. Um, And again, kind of connecting to what we're talking about today, wrought throughout the entire interview was his experiences with anxiety, depression, grief, shame, frustration, and then having to field all of those feelings and emotions in such a public way. Um, it, It just struck me as, one, how difficult that would be and how hard that would be um and then also I I think I just really respect and appreciate Rory McElroy. um mm-hmm. I think he comes across really well and I I was really inspired by it and found him to be a really interesting thoughtful considerate person um there's certainly things that if we treat him like a celebrity, we could get at him about. But there's other things within it that just felt really human and kind and patient and thoughtful, and so it, it, it's worth checking out.
0: Well, very interesting. I'll have to do that. It is, I think, just giving that kind of access speaks volumes in some ways. Um, whenever I see an athlete willing to do that, I think it, mm-hmm. it, it's um, it's really powerful. And it's interesting, you know. I think that um, everyone has their right. To do what Federer and Nadal apparently Mm -hmm. do. Right. But it does a disservice in some ways to you, I feel like. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that you and I are enraptured by the NBA these days is because those athletes seem more willing to have those conversations versus some of these other sports where they play it more close to the chest. And that leaves Mm -hmm. more compelling stories and more things to talk about when you're willing to be open. And generally speaking, it's not even when what you're talking about is not ideal, it doesn't come around to bite you in the same way it does if you're sheltering yourself all the time.
1: Right. Yeah, and so especially in a world like golf, which you could argue is like, does what it can to keep things as close as possible to the chest. Uh, It it was especially refreshing um, that Rory was willing to answer some really tough questions.
0: Well, it is fascinating. I wonder how much of that is uh, European stuff as well. And in, in terms, of, I, I remember reading about this during the um, Cristiano Ronaldo rape allegations, which I've mm-hmm. uh, kind of died away at this point, but that was a large part it seemed because uh, under European law to make anything stick to him, you had to physically get to him and hand him the lawsuit. Yeah. And they're like, there's no way that that's ever going to happen. Like, yeah. And so this is a moot point because there's no way his team you're going to get close enough to him to actually put anything in front of him which is a was a staggering way of thinking about
1: him. That is staggering to think about. Gosh, yeah, literal physical access is impossible. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Well, speaking of European sports, what have we learned about Manchester City this week?
0: So, um, we haven't learned a ton other than, (laughs) uh, apparently, you know, they were, they were faced some, um, uh, stuff earlier this decade or last decade, I suppose at this point, man, that's kind of strange. I don't know what decade Mm -hmm. we're technically in at this point, but, um, (laughs) um, in the 2010s, they faced some, uh, backlash for breaking some financial fair play rules and, and being a little underhanded. And now, there was a, some hacking that happened last year, and a bunch of stuff was released to a German newspaper about these things, and uh, Man City kind of got wrapped up in that, and they've refused to acknowledge that any of the stuff that came out was true, but UEFA seems to have run with it. Uh, and the big criticism seemed to be that in order to get around the financial fair play regulations, which require you to you know, maintain a fairly balanced budget and all of these things their owner would um, manipulate things to get money into the club uh, in order to balance the books. So, for instance, Eddie had paid a bunch of money for sponsorship, but it came out that Eddie had only paid like eight of the $45 and the rest of it came from the Sheikh's personal company and personal holdings, and that apparently is not allowed. And so that combined, these things combined with um, UEFA calling... Uh, man city uncooperative in the investigation has led to a two-year ban from champions league football which is a substantial hit mm-hmm. we're talking 25 30 of their revenue um lost due to that um so that's pretty huge uh it's kind of shaken the whole world and man city uh, is going to be appealing the decision which is interesting to me in and above itself the the whole judicial system around all of this mm-hmm. um but they are, of course, claiming that UEFA was out to get them and this was a prejudicial investigation from the offset. Um, and so uh, it's it's a long way from finished. but it kind of shook the entire European sports world this week.
1: Yeah, and so I, I as much as I have gleaned from it, I, I'll have to admit I don't fully get everything that's gone on. I guess I don't know the past all that well. But what stood out to me reading about it this week was that essentially what Manchester City is doing is taking on the adjudicating body head on. Mm -hmm. And so what that effectively would mean is that Man City... they to win this appeal is proving themselves more powerful than uefa Mm -hmm. so the institution that is supposed to be overseeing uh european club soccer at that level is essentially going to be ousted by one of the clubs and so what happens when one of the clubs is more powerful and more salient than the institution that's supposed to keep everything within the confines and and that yeah, it's the a couple of the articles I read immediately like appealed to the um uh, ways in which it looks and feels a lot like what's happening in the United in Donald Trump's United States mm-hmm. uh and that this feels like that they're pulling his playbook and just going down the list of what to do attack the people that attacked you and deny any wrongdoing at every turn and prove that they're the ones that are corrupt, and then everything will be fine.
0: And the hard thing is um, it's hard to doubt some of that stuff. We know that UEFA is an incredibly dysfunctional organization. Right. Um, We know that there are very petty individuals involved in all of this stuff. Right, um, And so that makes it all feel, uh, you know, it's like, well, I don't know what to think about all of this. Right. Um, well, and beyond all of that, there's some speculation as well. And this is particularly interesting to me that, um, that there's some speculation that uh, Man City will take on the financial fair play rules as unlawful as a whole, which would, of course, be a massive, uh, massive thing to take on.
1: So what will the players do? Will they stick with their contracts?
0: I don't know. I would yeah. be doubtful of that. Um, yeah. I think some of them will. Mm-hmm. Like I could see Raheem Sterling staying just because he's an English guy and you know you could still win the Premier League. But somebody like Kevin De Bruyne, I would suspect that he is thinking about other places to go. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I can't. I mean, I, I immediately think about all the contracts that those players have with outside organizations. Mm-hmm. So, like Adidas and Nike, what they're thinking here, and I'm sure they're the first ones to call up their player and say, "Okay, we gotta get you out of here." In fact, I could see a scenario wherein they would prove to the player that it's not in their contract with Nike to stay with Man City, (laughs) you know, and say, like, no, you signed a contract that said you'd play this many games on international television, and, like, you've got to do that, which would be an interesting contrast.
0: On the flip side, I would suspect that they're probably, Nike and, and those folks in Adidas are probably saying, hey, there's no rush uh, waiting you know we don't have to do anything till the summer because in some ways you're going to get twice as much publicity every moment yeah. if you're doing anything for the rest of the year yeah um, that's a good point and so you know let's this is in no way a bad thing right now it may be in a year when you're not playing on on uh, TNT's weird bleacher r- report coverage but um, right right. Uh, right now hell we'll we'll take all the coverage we can get right
1: yeah And it's hard to understate, I think, that of how significant this is because it's, I think, from an American perspective, because the way soccer is covered, especially Champions League, is that we do have to watch it through bleacher reports, like Mm -hmm. weird, seemingly unimportant coverage, but like billions of people watch these matches uh, and so it, it has significance far beyond the American sports world, and I, I feel like it, it can be hard to remember that um, in in a certain way.
0: Well, and it really, um, you know, there's. Uh, I'm wondering too what it will do to some of these conversations that have felt not particularly substantial up to this point, but I think are probably bigger than we think of from the outside about things like the big clubs from each domestic league leaving the domestic leagues and forming their own uh, European league. So you would have, mm-hmm. you know, the top six in England and the top four or six in Spain and Italy and France and Germany all leaving their own competitions to make a bunch more money only playing against each other. Mm-hmm. I have to think that that Man City all of a sudden becomes uh, much more interested in a vocal proponent
1: of some of those things. Mm-hmm. so I'm going to stretch this for a second uh, and kind of (laughs) tease out a a thought I had this week after reading this article. So after several articles about it, um, so Louisville FC just uh, built their new stadium. And so the first matches will be played here in a couple months. And I was thinking about this recurring thing that we keep coming across, which is uh, Saudi money. In sports. Mm -hmm. And when you think of Manchester City, I don't know what their founding date is, but I'm sure it's like 1840s or something like that. Maybe, you know, 1800s for sure. Mm -hmm. And how you've got British colonial money now coming in contact with, I think they're actually Abu Dhabi, Mm -hmm. if I'm correct. Uh, So connected with oil money and oil money connected with. Uh, war in in that part of the world and how connected American way of life is with what those guys do with their money and what they set oil prices at. And so there's a connection for me between like Louisville FC building their stadium. And part of me was looking at it of like, this is great for our city. And I was like, there's also a version of this that like eventually probably not in my lifetime, but that that stadium connects Louisville with Saudi money in Mm. some direct way. And so it was just like, part of me was just like, okay, it seems pretty innocuous and good right now uh, because it's like not noticeable, but there's a scenario in there that maybe a hundred years from now, uh, there's something really messy on the other side.
0: Well, I mean, we've seen that. I mean, that's, I think goes back to the whole NBA China thing that we spent some time talking about that. Mm -hmm all of a sudden these things can flare up and all of a sudden you're in a really difficult position as a sport of how do you deal with these things, whereas before you could have been kind of open and accepting of whatever was going on.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, why don't we move on to our regular topic, but I do want to take just a quick moment here to highlight uh, a positive thing, I think, from the past week. I think I would frame this as a positive thing. Yeah. And I'm sorry to dump this on you with no uh, expectation. No, go for it. But um uh Ali Reza Faruja, which is a a chess player from Iran just had played what many think was the game of the year or will be the game of the year against um the number 2 player in the world Fabiano Caruana from the US uh and won um this past week and he is a fantastic story 16 years old everyone is fairly convinced at this point he's going to become like the next big thing in chess um but interestingly he has renounced his uh Iranian uh nationality for the world chess stuff because uh he was not allowed to play against an Israeli individual uh as being from Iran so he renounced it to take part in a tournament where he would do that and i think that that Speaks in some ways to the power of sports to overcome some of these conflicts that we see ourselves in. It's, I mean, there's obviously much more complexity to it, but mm-hmm. uh, I think that's just a really interesting story and speaks to some of how we hope that sports will transcend things in the world.
1: Mm. That's fascinating on so many levels. The thought of renouncing citizenship uh, to play a chess match like, wow, mm-hmm. yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah. I saw Magnus get in a little bit of a uh I at least he was making headlines, not necessarily for chess, but did he sign a contract with a betting organization?
0: So he's Is had a he... contract, I think, with a betting organization for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't uh, I did not see this headline, but um yeah, there's that there, there, he's been involved with that kind of stuff for, for quite a while now.
1: So, I I need to look more into it, but uh, what I gleaned was that this new contract that he signed uh, is with an organization or company that is illegal in Norway. Interesting. And so, uh, people were wondering if he would advertise them in Norway, and he's like, no, I won't, because I'm not allowed to. So, whenever he's in Norway, he's not going to wear their emblem, Hmm. (laughs) as if that makes it go away. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I'm seeing here Unibet is who he is connected with yeah
1: yeah, yeah.
0: interesting it's fascinating uh, uh, this article here talking about how they have similar perspectives on how luck is not uh, uh, a coincidence that you have to put in your hard work for betting and it's like okay Magnus I see why you believe that but uh, let's be real you're not the typical individual out in the world
1: yes <laughs> He's a a one percent of the one percent of the one percent when it comes to things like that yeah.
0: oh my it is it is interesting. There are several interviews out there with Magnus where he's like, I consider myself medium smart, which I actually kind of get like I think that he has this incredible skill, but I don't know that he has like this he's not like this amazing polymath that will can talk about anything with a with a great deal of expertise. It's like this is. He's very skilled in this one particular area. And I don't think he's unintelligent. It's just he doesn't identify himself as some kind of person that's above the rest of us, which I I just find interesting.
1: Yeah, from all I've watched of him, he treats it all like a muscle. Mm -hmm. He's just training a muscle as opposed to like building up intellect, which would be different. Yeah. All right.
0: Well, let's uh, let's talk about our main topic today, um, Kyle. Do you want to kind of give us an introduction here?
1: Sure. So we thought it would be important to address what is becoming more ubiquitous and well known, and definitely talked about to a more public audience, and that being mental health and how mental health crosses over with professional sports. And so there are countless ways in which the conversation could go. I think there is a political policy side of the conversation. I think there is an economic conversation. And then there's this social aspect of well-being. And, of course, as we know, something like well-being can become commodified. But I think we're more interested in how individuals... Negotiate being professional athletes and how individuals have mental health issues. And that is something that professional sports, by and large, until very recently, has not taken seriously or not had the knowledge and education to take it seriously. Uh, Would maybe be a kind approach to it. But I think a few things stand out that would be interesting to suss out and talk about a little bit. And one is the change. So talking about like why it is becoming more common to talk about it and how that is changing things as the conversation is uplifted in that way. I also think it would be interesting to talk about what's happening in the immediate. So how these organizations and these individuals are negotiating this change. And then I also think it would be interesting to kind of talk about what's next. And so for me, a sort of central question is related to a sort of motto uh, or dictum that has arisen within this growing conversation. And you hear it almost in the language of all these professional leagues that are putting out information and, you know, have a drop down on their website now for mental health and wellness and that is their aim to normalize uh, mental health issues in professional sports. Mm-hmm. So I think my question is kind of like, okay, so this is great, but what do you mean by that? What mm-hmm. what does that actually mean? Uh, and I don't know if I have an answer right off the bat to it, but I think maybe kind of talking through how we came to this, like I think it would be interesting to hear, like our again, not that our voices are so important, but uh, like, when we first came across this in sports is interesting to me and how it's changed in our lifetime and just kind of what we make of how it got to this point is maybe a, would be an interesting place to start. So do you remember the kind of first time this came on your radar?
0: Hmm. I do not. What I can say... um I mean, I think it's always kind of been an ever present. You know, I I think the first time I kind of thought about it was on a very personal level. Um not on the looking at professional athletes level, you know, and mm-hmm. I played a lot of um semi competitive sports in college. Mm-hmm and at some point i decided to stop playing basketball because it just frustrated me and i wasn't happy because i was playing competitive basketball while playing competitive frisbee mm-hmm. uh, and so i was like i'm going to go back to one sport because i can't get angry at two sports at the same time <laughs> yeah um but i think we've yeah right we've seen more and more of this come up you know i think for me all of the drugs in sports has been a symptom of this forever. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's kind of been recognized, but the conversation is much more prescient now. So what what about yourself? When did it come to the
1: forefront for you? So similarly, I uh, have struggled with anxiety and depression and learned that both of those things turn on obsessive compulsive disorder and I think one of the central things that would be interesting to talk about when we try and answer this question, what does it mean to normalize mental health in sports, is that anxiety and obsessiveness that I experienced as a kid uh, playing sports, the only answer I was ever given for it was to toughen up Mm -hmm. uh, and to push through it. And uh, it was only named butterflies. So when I had butterflies in my stomach, I was taught to... Uh, toughen up and become hard and push through it and be a man about it uh, and so I think masculinity both of the toxic form and the hyper form are a big part of this and so I would agree with you too that drugs uh, in professional sports and sports in general uh, play a, a big role in how I think we've seen athletes deal with that of not having a language for it and not knowing about it and uh, For me personally, the first time I realized that professional athletes had anxiety and depression uh, was Joey Votto in 2009, Mm -hmm. uh, was having anxiety attacks after his father's death and took time off from baseball. And that was the first time I can remember an athlete taking time off for anxiety. And so it was a thing that I think is interesting is that it was connected with my team. So being a Cincinnati Reds fan at that time in a big way, our best player taking time off for anxiety kind of threw the whole fan base into this mental health conversation without any outlets for how to talk about it. Mm. And so there were articles written that he was like just being a wimp, like suck it up, Bado, get out there, everyone's dealing with stuff. Um, And then a couple years later was uh, Royce White, Uh, I played for Iowa State after being kicked out of Minnesota, and again, why Royce White came on my radar is because John Calipari wanted him at Kentucky when he got kicked out of Minnesota, and Royce White's big thing was that he had a fear of flying, and he suffered from anxiety uh, and set out a bunch of games in college or would drive to games in college, uh, and he would only fly when he had to, and then he only played uh, a few years in the NBA, but never got real playing time and he cites anxiety as the reason for that uh, and currently is no longer playing basketball but he was the 16th pick I think in 2012 mm-hmm. or 11. So those were the first big ones and then most recently I think um, DeMar uh, DeRozan speaking up in the NBA is what I feel like was a turning point at least is I was paying attention to it. Um, I feel like the way he talked about it was with a a different angle and a different approach that was just much more comprehensive, much more unapologetic. Um, And when I think about what it is to normalize, I think maybe the way DeMar DeRozan went about it feels like the next step. Hmm. Uh, So that was kind of my avenue, I think, up until this. But um, I'm sure there were many others speaking out. It just probably came in codes that... We probably, again, just didn't have the language for it.
0: Mm hmm. Well, it does, I think, it makes me wonder all of this stuff. I mean, anytime, so sure, just to share a little bit, because I think this will help the conversation, that for me, you know, anytime someone is murdering someone else or acting out in, you know, domestic violence ways or any of these kind of things, um, I uh, think that there's an element of mental illness involved in Mm -hmm. that because I don't think that uh, you can get there without that kind of situation. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that I've had this conversation with people before where it upsets them that they feel like that is leading to more stigma around the conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. I can understand that argument, but I think it's crucial in how we understand um, people's interactions with one another and take some of the... Um, evilness out of some of these actions. So for me, even going back to things like, you know, um, uh, you know, these uh, Ray Caruth and things like that, or these domestic violence things, or even in some ways going back to Pete Rose and his betting, um, mm-hmm. I link all of that stuff to a certain form of, of mental illness that manifests in this
1: population of, uh, of extreme athletes. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the key questions that comes after we acknowledge it insofar as it relates to policy, because once we humanize the person um, being convicted or accused of some sort of infraction, large or small, uh, what does the policy say on the other side once we incorporate mental health into the issue? Mm -hmm. And so I think what stands out about Royce White for me, is I uh, I, re- I recall fighting against myself of saying, he is saying he has anxiety right now because he just got kicked out of school for stealing a laptop, uh, or being close to, or in you know in proximity to some other players that also got accused of stealing. Um, similar to Joey Vado, I was like, oh, he's not playing well. He's citing anxiety as an out. Like that is the uneducated ignorant perspective i think and so i was definitely thinking about it i sent you the podcast this week uh mm-hmm. shamika Holdsclaw has become one of the most outspoken and uh dedicated people in professional sports to uh mental health issues and she interviewed ron artest um talking about the uh fight uh between the pistons and the pacers and yeah, and even Derek Rose uh, also came out this week uh, talking about uh, PTSD that he suffered from growing up in poverty. And so that list is is all of people that have been in trouble uh, mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. And so what do we do with that if mental health is cited as a reason for that trouble?
0: Well, this is where, for me, it, it, it often comes down to you don't uh, not punish someone like Mm -hmm. i mean ron Artest deserved the punishment that he got for what he did in some Mm -hmm. in my mind because you have to have a deterrent because otherwise um uh, you just don't get there and so that deterrent has to exist but at the same time you have to couple that with understanding of the person and and moving forward and humanizing them and trying to get them help as the first and foremost thing Mm -hmm. i mean i do think that there are people in the world that we cannot help um you know sociopaths that turn into serial killers or whatever I, i'm not here saying that everyone can be helped through that and that we need to humanize them all but i do think uh it's worth taking a moment and not totally separating ourselves from those things and recognizing how similar we are to those things and how if things had gone differently in our lives we could be in those positions um hmm and so I think that, you know, with the thing like the malice in the palace, you know, one of the worst moments in NBA history, you absolutely have to come down on that. But you also have to follow it up with, hey, man, we're not going to kick you out of the league and stuff. And so that's the hard part in some ways is what what happens if this is the 12th guy on the bench and mm-hmm. he's struggling for that contract. And in that podcast, Ron Artest, or, or Meta World Peace, talks about um, – how hard it was for him to get that Lakers contract that they were the only ones interested in him even after he was demonstrated he's clearly still an exceptional basketball player right um and so what happens what does the league do with someone that's on the fringes already and mental health is an issue and so like they may not be an NBA player if if uh, they don't get a hold of things do you then invest in them even when they're not critical to your product and i think that's some of the big picture questions we have to think about and you know extend all this stuff to the g league players as well who are perhaps even under more stress in some ways than the the folks in the league already and trying to make that all as all-encompassing as possible which is really in some ways as much about national health care reform than it is about anything else
1: right Right, and so that I I get caught in a sort of quagmire for myself when I start thinking about it, because when I think of Derrick Rose and Metal World Peace and Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan, I feel like of of uh, of amongst like the most powerful institutions and organizations in the United States, the NBA has to be one of them, and. Part of that power is in money and if access to mental health necessitates money, then an organization like the NBA should have like the best mental health program the world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. And they are capable of that because it honestly would probably not cost that much, right? It's literally just like making a therapist available to each team. So you pay that therapist $100,000 a year or whatever. It's a blip on the NBA radar, And so in that way, it's kind of an example of like what you're talking about of, well, when you've got money and power and access to these things, you get the best version of it. But I think one thing you wanted to talk about that maybe can be inserted here is how, yes, this is a problem in the NBA and yes, it's a problem for for professional athletes, but we've got billions of kids around the world playing sports and sports are a Uh, a progenitor in a way or they catalyze uh, these emotions and these feelings and having outlets for kids all over the world to talk about their feelings and their emotions and understanding that the sports cause them to feel things uh, and experience emotion. So how do we deal with them? Uh, And I I was, um, Kevin Love has become very vocal and we just mentioned him, but I feel like he put it really succinctly. I have a quote from him where he said, growing up, you figure out really quickly how a boy is supposed to act. You learn what it takes to be a man. It's like a playbook. Be strong. Don't talk about your feelings. Get through it on your own. So for 29 years, I thought about mental health as someone else's problem. I know you don't just get rid of problems by talking about them, but I've learned that maybe you can better understand them and make them more manageable. And so, yeah, it's that education piece that maybe is more important than the NBA putting in a policy. But the NBA putting in a policy does help efforts for that education, too.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to set two kind of things up here. And I think one of the things that stood out to me from that Samika Hull squall and, and our test interview was just um, – how they had been dealing with these issues long before they got to the NBA. Mm -hmm. And the NBA uh, exacerbated them significantly in the WNBA um, because of the unique pressures that are in that situation and the situation that having a bunch of money can get you into. Um, And I think in some ways, I think that's a little bit different from kind of anxiety and depression and mental illness that's brought on by – playing the sport itself Mm -hmm. and so it's just interesting the two how the two overlap and and how to think about it and um i I did really appreciate ron talking about um you know people said you wouldn't have been the same player if you didn't have a chip on your shoulder and you weren't angry all the time he's like no it's not true right Um, but there is that weird line between like you want you know, you want to be a little bit anxious. If you're too calm when you go up to the plate to bat, then you're not going to focus enough. But if you're too right. anxious, then you can't focus then either. So where, like, it's this weird tightrope you have to walk. Um, and I, I think in some ways, um, I really appreciate these folks in the NBA talking about this, and uh, I feel for these guys and want them, and women, and want them to get, things straightened out um but at the same time you're being heavily compensated and i feel like um it's not where our best energies lie if we're going to fix this issue in some ways um in terms of you do have access in the nba and some of these other leagues are starting to take it seriously now Uh, what really worries me is these high school and college athletes where we see um what I've read about this week termed as an increase in intensive parenting um, and uh, increased coaching leading to incredible mental health problems for high schoolers and college students um, ranging from anything caused by, you know, incredible linking of your self worth to your performance, because that's what you've been told it's all about by your coach mm-hmm. and your, and your parents There it seems to be a great consensus that it's getting worse because focus, Kids focus on one sport for years and years and years. Um, But even like the small things beyond that, which are not small things, like when you're having to practice twice a day and you have to get all your homework done, um, these kids aren't sleeping, and that's a major contributor to these things. They're overtrained, they're exhausted all the time. It's just a really unhealthy way that we do this, and it's not like this is just at the top end of the sport. This is pretty ubiquitous throughout the entire youth sports ecosystem. And that's something that really scares me for how we're setting these folks up to not have solid mental health habits moving forward.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that ties into the, what does it mean to normalize mental health in sports? And I feel like that's a first step, right? Mm-hmm. Is uh, in addition to illuminating for the public the connection between poverty and mental health disorder it also allows for an illumination of how these patterns we're setting up for how sports are supposed to operate are a perfect conduit for mental health disorders Um, and to be putting that on the shoulders of um Young athletes and young kids that just want to play some sports and have some fun with their uh, friends—it's—it's really distressing, and I think it's heightened even more, especially in America, with the pressure for college scholarships. Mm -hmm. So I feel like mental health is the mental health conversation in sports is sitting right next to that industrial complex that exists with college sports in America, that the two are so so closely tied together, and so if we yeah go ahead
0: well, and I'll add on the additional part that what particularly bothers me in some ways is always it comes back to privilege that you know uh, a person that grew up in Harlem with like Ron with twenty kids in a three bedroom apartment yeah. um I don't blame the parents for pushing them super hard to kind of get there. that's they want their kids to have a better way out. But, for this suburban kid, where their mom and dad are like, "Hey,, uh, we've got enough money to pay you to go to college, but I need you to get this scholarship right. because of other reasons that's 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 viscerally upsetting to me, yeah,
1: yeah, that's a really good point
0: It's not like it's okay for parents in other situations to be that way, but to have alternatives and to be that way is is and to have better patterns available to you is just particularly upsetting.
1: Yeah, and all the more revealing of ignorance, I feel like, mm-hmm. because as an optimist, I would point out that, or I would long to point out that uh, if if you knew and if this was normalized, so to speak, that you wouldn't do that, uh, that you'd say like, "Oh, this is causing irreparable harm in my child," mm-hmm. and you have to think that if one of the most powerful forces in the world is protection of a child. Uh, that if you knew this, you just wouldn't do it. Um, or do it. it yeah, it, it just reeks of ignorance for me. And so I guess that's where it's hopeful. Uh, I find hope in these professional athletes speaking out that I guess I do believe in that network of knowledge mm-hmm. coming from these professional athletes.
0: Well, and let's be clear here. The biggest thing we need to do is undermine Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours thesis because <laughs> that's what's to blame for much of this.
1: <laughs> well, at least it needs an addendum, right? <laughs> yes. I, I feel like maybe that's always been our... I'm realizing for me personally, I won't speak for you, but maybe our, our mutual just slight frustration with that is that he is uh, highlighting the what it takes to become a genius or an expert but by highlighting it seems to give a kind of sign off on it and say that it's okay and so an addendum that would say this here is the model here's the playbook but don't do it <laughs> kind of thing yes anyway I'll, i
0: won't go too hard at you today malcolm but um come partly on the podcast because we want to have you so, on yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i do um I do think it's important to raise what I think is an interesting dilemma here, um, which is this question of the stigma around mental illness, which I have been really intrigued by for a while now, that we talk a lot about this stigma. And I um, I have to question for myself how much I believe it matters at this point. I think that in certain situations it's very true but in other situations like I think about some of these professional athletes in particular where your whole life is devoted to perfecting something at this point and you're like your self-worth and your identity as a person is really wrapped up in excelling in this one thing. And I think that's true and you know you can do that in the boardroom or wherever else you're thinking about that. But um and so in some ways having a mental illness is a weakness that they perceive in the same way that I think they would perceive a sprained ankle or some other kind of thing as a weakness. Um, and so they just want to work through it. And so not acknowledging it in some ways is not about a stigma against mental illness. It's about you keep your weaknesses to yourself. Like we don't expect DeMar DeRozan to come out and talk to us about, um, mm-hmm. about how, you know, he's really having struggle shooting the three pointer that that's a, weakness in his game that he really prefers that mid-range shot he's not going to go out and have a press conference about that so why would we expect him to come out and have a press conference about you know how he is really struggling with his the loss of his mom and so Mm -hmm. we need to like it's less in some ways about being public and doing that as it is about can we Can we make this a health thing in the same way that a sprained ankle is where you just go see your doctor and you go talk to someone about it and you treat it that way as opposed to needing this to be about removing the stigma? Because in some ways, I think the more we talk about there being a stigma, the more the stigma
1: exists. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It feels like a, a really good articulation of the complexity because it immediately takes me to a space of commodification. Mm -hmm. In that because DeMar DeRozan is a commodity, but he's a commodity that has a long-term $100 million contract, speaking out becomes so much easier. Uh, And so a day off or a couple games off for DeMar DeRozan isn't going to completely deplete his bank account. And not only that, but it's not going to keep him from another contract uh, once this contract is up. And so in that way... It's the stigma conversation seems to be something that is available to those that have already cultivated a certain amount of power. Mm. Uh, And so in that way, it harkens back to Royce White. And I don't know if Royce White ever had the power uh, to affect... Um, as much change as DeMar DeRozan can, at least in their immediate personal life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so that, that kind of raises an interesting part of that kind of same conversation, the power piece of who gets to talk about it.
0: Yeah, and I think for me that, you know, um, when I'm thinking about the stigma that I want to be overcome, I want to give that power back to these young people to say, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, this is, uh, I'm having problems right now and mom or dad or coach, you need to stop yelling at me right now. Right. Um, you know, um, that th- you need to stop telling me what I need to eat because I now have a, uh, eating disorder because of what you guys have taught me for the majority of my life. You know, these mm-hmm. kind of things I think are, that's where I want to see that done. And I don't, know how to do that you know i think it's an education piece but i think it's tough because the parents that are willing to push their kids are just they're always going to be parents that are willing to do that it feels like
1: mm-hmm.
0: and a coach that yells at his kids is probably always going to do that to some degree
1: yeah yeah i i think for me personally it comes down to masculinity and how masculinity pervades throughout all sports boys and girls sports um girls sports is so often in my opinion uh played in the image of the masculinity that taught us to play sports in america the way we do and worldwide but um yeah i think it's going to be about decoupling those expectations for what sports are and how they're supposed to be taught and played like you said the coaches and the parents
0: and of course it there's great irony in the fact that physical activity in sports is a great way to alleviate depression and <laughs> right. anxiety as exactly. well. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It can be the place we go for freedom. And yeah. I think, um,
0: I, I, this moment always stands out for me and probably always will. This moment, and I think I've mentioned it on here before, of Tim Duncan in the NBA Finals, um, playing in the hallway with this kid during halftime. Right. Yeah. And I think about, you know, he was, clearly not in a happy place. He was going through um, a divorce at the time, but Coach Popovich and the Spurs institution gave him room in this most important game in in the season to have time with his family. And I think about the the things that we can do if we diminish the importance of the game and increase the importance of healthy relationships, um, that there is hope out there that you can kind of Get to a better place with this.
1: That's so well said. I love that. Well, here, here we are. Here we are saluting pop again. <laughs> it's, hard
0: yeah. it's hard not to. It's hard not to. It's and it's so complex because I to go back to the Spurs example, like the Spurs are famously utilitarian, and so if, if your contract is too high for what they think you're giving them, they will let you go in a heartbeat. But they also yeah. Will treat you very much like a human and they're very famous for these dinners where Pop wants to get to know who you are as a person. Right. Um so it's all super complex, but he also is gonna yell at you if you screw up yep. on the court. Yep. So
1: Yep.
0: Uh, Pop, we'd love to have you on. So Seriously. That would be the biggest win ever in some ways. So
1: Yeah, we'd have to <laughs> shut down after that. <laughs> There's nothing left.
0: I mean, only Obama after that, it feels like. Yeah, so. that is true. Yeah. <laughs> oh my. Well, what are you paying attention to this week, man?
1: So it actually picks up uh, on the point you just made about sports as an outlet and a place for dealing with depression and anxiety uh, and alleviating those things. And that points to the story of Jim Walmsley. The ultra marathoner who is now trying to qualify for the Olympics in the marathon. Mm. And a few things about his story stand out to me. One is uh, what I just mentioned. He turned to ultra marathons after a spell of depression, after his essentially just kind of early 20s as many of us know, are difficult uh, after college. Kind of finding your way and what's going to work for you can be difficult after college, especially for standout athletes that now have to enter the real world uh, and they're not so special maybe as they were in college. Uh, And so after a spell of depression, he started running and just running every day and became ultra runner of the year four times in a row. Mm. And he is trying to qualify for the Olympics, uh, which will happen on February 29th in Atlanta. And essentially, he needs to run a 210 or better. And he says he's on pace for it. He says he thinks he can do it. Uh, And so a couple other things are interesting about that fact. One is uh, he keeps getting asked about the Nike shoes. And he's under contract with um, Hoko One One. And he's saying that the same thing that other people are saying. Of like, my shoes are great. I'm, I'm staying. Like he's saying what he has to say because he's under contract with them. Uh, but you have to think that he's like, oh, if I had a four percent shoe and I'm running two tens, that puts me at a two oh six in the Olympics, mm-hmm. right? of course he's thinking that. Uh, So, I find that interesting and it'll be especially interesting if he doesn't qualify and the only people that do qualify are wearing Mm Vaporflies. It's also interesting because ultra runners get a lot of flack from marathoners. Uh, They're often called hobby joggers. And ultra marathons are kind of seen as this like uh, niche kind of minority sport for weirdos and uh, these people that just like pushing mental limits, uh, and so he, Jim Walmsley, is kind of emerging as someone from the ultra marathon world, kind of as their token, and saying if he can do it, then you need to respect what we do in ultra marathons. Interesting. Yeah. So it'll be. I, I'm pulling for him. I, hmm. I've kind of cultivated a an interest in him, but also he he seems like a a, a thoughtful, good person, and so I I, I hope he does it.
0: Well, it does raise the question as well of um, when are we going to have an ultra marathon in the Olympic Games? Because that feels like only a matter of time at this point. Yeah,
1: that's a good point. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, he's uh, he's uh, mirroring and copying the Japanese uh, model for training for a marathon, uh, which is essentially run as much as you can. Hmm. Uh, which is a really different model than the American model, and he's also self-coaching because he thinks kind of like we mentioned, like coaches push you into places where are that are uncomfortable mm-hmm. because they don't know what's going on inside your body. And so the running world, this is kind of getting into the specifics, but was fascinated because just this week he pulled out of a his hardest train. Um that's it was like his pinnacle training moment. Hmm. Uh and he pulled out halfway through because he said he just didn't feel good. Um and so a bunch of people were like, Well, he's done now, he's not gonna do it. That was his most important training session. But because hmm. he self coached, he's like, I know my body and it was time for me to pull out.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Yeah. Whereas a coach would have said, Nah, keep going.
0: Yeah. Well we've yeah. heard all the stories about how this uh these Nike camps have Mm -hmm. been horrible things to be part of
1: right exactly Hmm. yeah what about
0: you so i uh you know nba all-star weekend this week so i am uh intrigued to watch the all-star game or snippets of it tonight and just wondering in some ways my interest with it is both from the angle of why is it the nba all-star game is clearly the best of all the all-star games yeah Um, but secondarily um what is the place for an all-star game yeah, or an all-star competition the question, yeah. in the modern world i just yeah. like there was a time when you didn't get to see all these people play all the time but now they're all available all the time yeah. and so uh what is the what is the role as a showcase for the sport as a showcase for the league uh, i'm just intrigued by that whole
1: question mm. even the talent having gone up such that there's like four amazing players on every team. Whereas mm-hmm. maybe in like the eighties and nineties, there was one great player on each team. Yeah. yeah. What is the draw? I, I, I haven't, I don't recall the last time I like couldn't wait for an all-star game. <laughs> it, it has depleted an interest for me personally. Well, yeah, and I think that's part of the thing
0: is that I don't particularly care very much, but I'm also like, I will say that um, I was captivated last night. Both the three point contest and the slam dunk contest were about the most exciting we had seen in recent years. So that's, you know, that kind of builds a little bit of anticipation. Maybe we can figure something out here. And they are, their all star game is a different uh, thing this year. They're playing to a number, Mm -hmm. they're not just playing. And so that's supposed to add some different competitiveness elements to it. And, um, Uh, I'm just intrigued. I don't don't know what to expect from it, but uh, what I'd really love to see and what would make it all, I think you'd agree with this, is that um, if we could see these guys go out and do like a pickup game essentially, which is what this is, except they actually play all out, that would be incredible. Yeah. Like to see LeBron throw something to Giannis in a game where they were actually trying Mm -hmm. would would be phenomenal. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'm picking this up from listening to the podcast Burn It All Down, and they were talking about how much they enjoyed the NHL All-Star game, Mm. uh, partly because their skills competition is so finely tuned Mm -hmm. that it kind of is devoid of that awkwardness that often settles in in those All-Star showcase things uh but not only that they played 3 on 3 tournaments and uh female professionals were part of the team hmm. and everyone apparently from what they were saying like went hard like they were they they got really competitive really quickly because they played smaller side in a smaller space and it was just really exciting they said hmm. so yeah something like that could be cool that's
0: the idea of the nba for this mid-season tournament instead of having traditional teams would be to have play a half-court three-on-three tournament with games to 21 Mm -hmm. uh, would be amazing. That that would be fun.
1: Yeah, I would watch that. (laughs)
0: I'd play it in Rucker Park or somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Anyway, Adam Silver, we're available for consultations if you're interested. So,
1: Yeah, we only cost $200 an hour, too.
0: (laughs) Which I'm sure is less than you're paying your current people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well,
1: well cool, All I'm right. good there.
0: Alright, well good deal. Thanks for listening folks. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this and uh I think we'll have some exciting news for you next week on another step in our project here. So uh stay tuned for that and we'll be back. But uh have a good week, huh?
1: All right, you too. Good cliffhanger by the way.